0: isn't um you know beat up calvary sunday or anything like that uh this is just the nature of the book of james it's hard hitting uh and and god has us here for a reason in this season of teaching and instruction um so uh i hope nobody's discouraged by the uh intensity of james um but it is in in the word and so there is uh, i think you would all agree value to it um and if if you are um Feeling uncomfortable with the kind of the hammer-hitting blows of James, then maybe ask yourself why. Why are you uncomfortable? Um, is it because it's actually telling you something about yourself uh, that you that you don't like? Um, because if we're truly jealous for God's truth, this ought to be, this book, James, ought to be like a cup of cool water to us. You know, we just this is just something we want to drink up, you know, not like fermented. Goat's milk or anything like that. Sorry, Josh, <laughs> wherever you are. That stuff's nasty. <laughs> All right. So, how were people's weeks um, this past week? Did you go away um, uh, thinking as you talked, as you communicated to whoever about whoever? Uh, when you attempted to say something negative, did you stop and hear in your ear the little word of James do not speak evil? of one another, brethren. Did, did anyone have a little experience like that this week? Just me? Okay. And uh, at least two of you. That's good. In fact, just yesterday I, I stuffed up and said a joke about something, and Julie, who it wasn't even here, I don't even think she's heard last week's sermon, but she pulled me up on it. And uh, again, that's what I hope we're going to do here as a church, is, is not speak evil of one another and not enable the speaking of evil if we hear it. You know, let's, let's address it. Do that in love, in grace, in truth. Um, So anyway, we also thought last week uh, about this idea that um, James is an instruction manual for Christian living. It tests our faith. Uh, It's more about the walk of the Christian life than just the talk, uh, so to speak. Remember, James is not a book about how we become a Christian. It's a book written to scattered Jewish Christians about what Christian living looks like. So we do not work to obtain salvation but we obtain salvation to do work that's the thesis of james faith without works is dead and so james gets all velvet steel on us and he gives us example after example after example which test our faith the primary purpose of which is not to cause you to doubt but to refine all right so if last week's sermon was titled testing your faith by not speaking evil then this week's title is called "Tested" or Sermon is, is going to be labelled Testing Your Faith by Submitting to the Will of God. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 4, uh, 13 through to the end of the chapter. So that's 13 through to 17. Um, let me just read that out for us now. I'm going to read from 11 to the end just to set context. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God... Hang on, this is Peter. <laughs> All right, getting concerned. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the occasion today. Thank you that you've brought us here. Thank you that uh, you call us your own. Thank you for giving us a heart of flesh that's willing to learn that's willing to sit under your word, I pray that be so this morning, that, again, as the hammer falls, thank you, James, that we would conform, transform to the very image of your son, Jesus. Leave our guard at the door and just let this speak to us in the way that you want it to for each of us individually, um, because you know where we're at. This next hour is yours, Lord. Get ready to move because our hearts are ready. Amen. All right. Let's get straight into it. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Straight away, by way of background, I guess, what's going on here is um, James is writing, first century to Jewish scattered believers, and now he's particularly talking to businessmen, scattered Jewish businessmen. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go to such and such a a city, buy and sell and make a profit. Now, in the first century Palestine, there were numerous different um, uh, trades that they had there. There was numerous different avenues of commercial activity. Uh, There was three main... Areas in particular, they had agriculture with olives and vineyards and things like that where they would trade and sell through the seaport into the Mediterranean and off to the rest of the Roman Empire. Um, they, had, uh, that was, sorry, they had agriculture, then they had the trade, so they're two different things. And thirdly, they had infrastructure projects. That was the other way that they had their main source of revenue in the um, region of Palestine. Uh, and that was particularly underneath the Herodian dynasty. Uh, the Herods just built lots of stuff. And so with those three areas, that's how the economy survived for the Jewish people in this region back then in the first century. So much like today, the economy back then was all driven by the profit margin. Uh, It's no different to what we have today in our business um, in the West and in the East. So James is writing this letter to scattered, particularly now he's addressing these scattered Jewish businessmen who were involved in trade. And he says, come now. You who say, "Today, tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit." That phrase, "Come now," you who say, it's it's a stern phrase. It's a stern statement. Uh, he, he's he's presenting this with an admonishing tone. So, what's what's James's beef here? What's he what's he getting at? Is he taking issue with people who plan? Is this problem here with people who, who make a plan for tomorrow or today or, or the year to come or anything like that? Is that what he's driving at? Well, I'm a planner. Anyone who knows me, I love to plan. I love Excel spreadsheets. As a project manager, it's what I breathe. I'm planning all the time. And it's actually changed the way I think about a lot of stuff in life, even the way I prep for a sermon um, with the way I plan and all the rest. Uh, I remember going to Julie, um, my wife, after we got married a couple of weeks in, and I threw down on the table and said, "Baby, here is our eight-year plan." <laughs> um, now she's not here, so I can say whatever I want. Um, I believe we're on schedule for our firstborn at 10 a.m., December the second, 2019. <laughs> you know, get the baby out in the morning, have the day to relax, and uh, that's how it works. You know, um, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's a um, that's a pun. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to dig up—it's hard to do. All right. Uh, if I remember correctly, and I think this is correct, when I gave her my eight-year A4 pencil-drawn plan, she gave me Proverbs sixteen nine: "A man's heart plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps." <laughs> Joking aside, uh, James is not saying here that planning is a problem. Okay, that's not what he's talking about. You can make plans. You can make provisions for the future. That's not wrong or bad or sinful. That's not his argument. There's nothing wrong with doing any of those things. In fact, I'd suggest it's actually unwise and foolish if you don't. And that's not me just saying. That Solomon wrote Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. Okay? So there's nothing wrong with me writing an eight-year plan, providing I write-it-in-pencil, and have an eraser ready to make the adjustments as God directs our steps. So if the issue here is not planning or making provisions for the future, what is it? What's he talking about? Well, if you cast your minds back to last week, again, James, in no uncertain terms, exhorted us to not speak evil of one another, brethren. How does that relate to what we're talking about? Well, after making that statement, do not speak evil to one another, brethren, remember he gave us three reasons why. Firstly, because speaking evil judges fellow Christians. Secondly, because speaking evil uh, speaks evil of the law. And thirdly, because speaking evil of one another judges the law. They were the three reasons why he told us not to speak evil of one another last week. So again, not to re-preach that sermon, gossiping, tearing other people down with our words we think that's just this horizontal thing that we've got going on between us and fellow people you know it's not James says no when we speak evil of one another it's not just a horizontal thing between us it's a vertical thing because that tells us about the condition of our heart with respect we have a worship disorder at that point because we're actually putting ourselves over and above those people when we speak down of them So that's what we looked at last week. And as James said to us, that puts ourselves in the position of the lawgiver. There's only one lawgiver, that is God himself. So it's actually blasphemy. Full on. It presumes to be above the law of Christ, which calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, and to love our neighbour as ourself. So that's where we left off last week, with this idea of self before God with this idea of pride, which is the nucleus of all sin. Remember this statement. We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. (laughs) You surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil that talking reptile makes eating the fruit sound appealing doesn't he so Eve looks at Adam and says well what do you think and he's like well yeah I want to be like God plus it looks tasty I'm hungry self before God way back then that's what the problem was. That's what we're still talking about today. Fast forward a few thousand years, Romans one twenty five, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. It's completely flipped up on its head. Two thousand, however many years you want to calculate from Adam and Eve to um, Paul there in the first century. Sin completely reverses the creation order because it puts self above God. The trouble with self-made men is that they worship their creator. Did you catch that? Trouble with self-made men is that they worship their creator. Sin flips creation on its head. Romans 1. It puts self in the center and pushes God to the periphery. Just listen and read some of the people who despise God and just watch how that happens Um, man is the centre of it all reason, purpose value so that's where we left off last week and that's where James is continuing today, that's the link these two different tests are joined by the issue of self before God, of pride and remember the context of James uh, chapter 4 as a whole is um, humility That's where Eugene started a couple of weeks back. So, again, James' problem here is not with planning or provisions per se. His issue is with the attitude of the heart that accompanies the planning and the making of those provisions. He is rebuking the arrogance of self-autonomy that has no consideration for the Lord's will. It is only consideration of the self-will. I was emailed a clip a couple of weeks back uh, and this clip is a YouTube clip. This guy, uh, T- Micah Tyler, uh, he's a Christian singer, and he wrote this fantastic two-and-a-half-minute clip um, called The Millennials. Has anyone watched that? Millennials? Yeah, all right. Yeah, it's good. You've got to go home and YouTube this. I was going to play it, but I'm not. Um, let me just read out a few of the lines, though, because uh, it really touches on this idea of the way society is today or he's talking about millennials but you could broad brush this with everyone uh, and how self-entitled we are these days listen to this these few lines and I'm going to butcher this I'm not going to try and sing it but go home and have a listen (laughs) (laughs) all right Uh, there he sits inside your local local coffee shop sporting a man bun and facial hair Somehow he believes that he has no job, by his 30s he will be a millionaire. M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L, gotta love millennials. M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L, gotta love millennials. She posts lots of selfies on her Instagram with a quote that's inspirational. Hopes to change the world while wearing yoga pants armed with her dreams and knowledge of essential oils. M I L L E N N I A L, gotta love millennials. M I L L E N N I A L, gotta love millennials. Criticism isn't easy for their ears. They feel like they know most everything. See, they grew up with undeserved confidence because they got trophies for just participating. (laughs) Love that. And then he goes through a few more verses, but he finishes up with this. In a couple of years, we will have to pass the torch. In a couple of years, they will be in charge. And one will be our president. Ha, 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 oh, no. <laughs> M-I-L, and a real vigilante kind you know, with a candle. M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A, L. God, I love millennials. M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A, help. Please pray for millennials. <laughs> Brilliant. Again, go listen to that. Um, But it just creatively captures uh, the way society is so much today. You know, the quintessential icon of today is the selfie. We feel the need to find our security and our self-worth in how we can present ourselves to the world. In social media, poor old millennials, they're no different than anyone else. They just have these new means by which to propagate that to the world. Again, this is not new. This This is Garden of Eden stuff. As soon as they sinned, what happened? They felt insecure, so they went and hid, remember? C.S. Lewis wrote this, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in somebody else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The vice I am talking of is pride. Pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it is Christian morals, and it's called humility. Now, please don't mishear me again. Um, I have no issue with Instagram, nothing like that. Let me confess, I I own a selfie stick, okay? (laughs) Guilty, right? Here's a funny story. I was in Paris when I bought this from some local guy, probably too much money just on the street. I was like, oh, I really want a selfie stick. Julie and I got all these ones with my arm taking up half the photo. Let's get one of these bad boys and it's going to be great. Didn't ask her. Went and spent, I don't know, like seven euros crazy for a piece of plastic. Anyway, went and uh, bought this selfie stick. There's some strange, but I don't know who he was, went up with me. Uh, we bought this selfie stick from the same guy. And I was like, this is awesome. Turn around and walk back. He's walking back to his p- partner and I'm walking back to Julie, uh, who were both kind of standing near each other. And the partner said to him, You didn't. And Julie looks at me and goes, Oh, David, (laughs) at the same time. So, um, yeah, I've got a selfie stick. Um, The point here isn't the tool. It isn't the... You know, that's not what we're talking about. Again, this is what's underneath that, uh, and it's how we use these things. Um, The world does not revolve around us. The world certainly does not revolve around you, and it certainly does not revolve around me. As one pastor declared... To focus on how I'm doing more than what Christ has done is Christian narcissism. And it is simply foolish to think that we can live outside of God's will and character and and charter the waters of life out there, the high seas, by ourselves, whether it's in business, like like he's addressing here with these Jewish businessmen, or whether it's forging our own destinies with no compass beyond our own personal preference. Whatever vocation you're in. Study, whatever. It's foolish. That's what James is saying. And he gives us four reasons why it's so foolish, why not submitting to the will of God is foolish. Four reasons. Here's an outline. Firstly, because of the uncertainty of life. Secondly, because of the brevity of life. Thirdly, because of the evil of arrogance. Leads to destruction. Fourthly, because the sin of willful disobedience. So let's look at these in turn. Verse 14a, the uncertainty of life. Firstly, not submitting to the will of God is foolishness because of the uncertainty of life. James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. This verse is drawing back on Proverbs twenty-seven, verse one, which reads, Do not boast about tomorrow for what you do not know, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. So he's using the same language here. So, to assume, as these Jewish businessmen did, that you can be certain, and that's the key word here, that you can be certain about your plans and provisions for today or tomorrow or even the next year is frankly delusional because you do not know what will happen tomorrow, much less this afternoon or next week or next year. James is saying... Guys, you claim to have faith, but this kind of self-autonomy that you're, you're living with in your business, it doesn't look like you're one who's living by, it doesn't look like one who's living by faith. And let me just go on a tangent here. It's going to be a long tangent, strap in, because I think it's important. We've been talking about faith a lot. We've been talking about faith a lot in James. I mean, that's, that's what we're doing here every Sunday through James, test of faith. Tests of, what is faith? What is faith? Unfortunately, there are a lot of, I think, unhelpful and just plain, unbiblical definitions of faith out there. Today, I sat in a lecture just around the corner here, the town hall, um, by a professor of philosophy who was travelling with the Richard Dawkins Foundation, um, an atheist bloke, and he defined faith as, quote, primarily belief without evidence... Secondarily, pretending to know things you don't know. He actually goes on to say, so whenever you see the word faith, like on a sign of a church or a magazine or like a pamphlet for a conference, say it's like um, rejuvenating your faith or something. He's like, you always got to change that definition to this rejuvenating belief without evidence. You know, faith conference 2015, pretending to know things you don't know conference 2015. No, that's not. Condescending—I don't know what is—but that was that was uh, the G-rated stuff that I heard. Unfortunately for him, though, that definition is not consistent with what the Bible says, and I don't know any Christian who would actually define faith that way. And also, unfortunately for him, that definition is not consistent by any lexiogra- lexiographical standards in the history of dictionaries. So, you know, we can change the meaning of words, but that doesn't change the meaning of words if you know what I mean. Um, yet his lecture was met with resounding applause. But even within Christianity, there are a lot of unhelpful definitions or descriptions of faith, I think, again, from my take. There's a a song that, that says, Faith makes a fool of what makes sense, but grace found my heart where logic ends. I appreciate that. I appreciate the intent of that. You know, It reminds me a lot of 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of the world versus the wisdom of God but I'm uncomfortable with the way it's phrased. Let me just read it again. Faith makes a fool of what makes sense, but grace found my heart where logic ends. What we're looking at here is, is a definition of faith that is, I just, it, it puts faith on this spectrum of trying to understand things, and I just don't think that's the way faith is used in the Bible. And I'm open to correction on this. Faith is not a means of understanding. Okay? Let me try and break this down. Philosophers use this word epistemology to describe the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? When I read my, my Bible and about faith, I don't see faith as a means by which we come to know something. That's why I think those lyrics are Uh, great intent but unhelpful because they're suggesting that reason or logic only takes you so far and then when you get to the end of your resources you need to plug in a little bit of faith to get you through the rest of the way it's just not the way that we see faith described here faith is not a way of knowing something and that's why we have this whole false dichotomy of faith versus reason as if they're pitted against one another that's not at all the way the bible talks about faith it's a categorical error it's kind of like saying what is the sound of green Green's a colour. Sound is sound. It's just two. Faith is a virtue. Knowledge and reason are in a completely different category. Okay? Don't take my word for it. Hebrews 11, 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is, one, the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is, two, the conviction of things not seen. The word here used for faith is pistis. It means belief, trust, confidence. The word for assurance is hypostasis, which is a word used in ancient business documents to describe a covenant as an exchange that guarantees um, the particularities of the contract. The word for conviction or certainty is elegahos, which is this idea of bringing forth evidence to demonstrate something. So let's join all of the dots Hebrews 11 says that faith is absolutely not something that we have in the place of evidence or knowledge or reason. Faith is a virtuous act of the will that says yes to the covenant relationship of God based on the evidence and expectation of what he has demonstrated where? cross of Jesus Christ. We have a reasonable faith. There is reasons why we have faith. There is no such thing as blind faith in Christianity. Faith does not make God real. It is a response to God who has revealed himself. Faith is a response to something you already know and believe to be true. The best illustration of this is marriage. When I got married to Julie, and we're standing there, down in barrel, facing each other, exchanging our vows, I chose to have faith in her on that day, And I chose to put my stock in the vows she said to my face on the basis of six years of knowing her prior to marriage. There were six years worth of reason that enabled me to choose on that day to commit to her in faith. The knowledge was all there, not exhaustively, but enough. Knowledge is not enough if I wanted to marry Julie. Julie because I had to take that virtuous step and commit my life to her. You see what I'm saying? You don't have all your reasons up to a certain point and then you have to interject faith to to fill the knowledge gap to God. You have your reasons. And then based on your reasons, you choose an act of the will to respond. That's what faith is. Satan knows God exists, but he doesn't have faith in the redemptive work of Christ. So let's not talk about faith on the same spectrum as knowledge, it's two different things, okay? Share that with your friends next time they have an issue with faith versus reason, science versus religion, okay? It's a categorical error. It confuses what the Bible teaches on faith. Knowledge is not enough. Reason, uh, faith is a virtue. There needs to be a covenantal commitment made with God and that is only made through faith. And by the way, the commitment of faith and trust in my wife... In the context of marriage, it is, a, it is a means, it means that I actually lose my independence for both of us, for her and for me, because we willingly choose to commit to ourselves for the rest of our life. And that, that means I'm losing my independence to her. So there is a change of personal status in the context of a faithful marriage from independence to dependence and that is the same thing with our relationship with Christ we are the bride he is the bridegroom and Jesus says Matthew 10:39 he who, who finds his life will lose it and he who, who loses his life for my sake will find it Paul says Galatians 2:20 i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ who lives in me and the life i live which i live now in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me again there's the reason So that's what faithful living is. We lose our lives to the one who lost his life for us. This is the Christian calling. We lose our independence as Christians when we commit by faith to be dependent on Christ's redeeming work. And so these businessmen here in the first century, back to our text. First century Palestine, they were not being faithful in their planning. Do you see how that how that comes back in now to our text this morning? They were not being faithful in their planning. They were not being faithful in their trade because they were not considering the will of God in their business. That's like me buying a house and a car without telling Julie. I, you do not live independently of God's will and I certainly would not do that independent of Julie's consultation. Selfie stick is a case in point. Now, you and I know that life is full of uncertainties, Okay. How many of you here have made plans and have had to change those plans because of some unforeseen circumstances? Two hands for me. We all do. We know that life is full of uncertainties. But we don't always live like we know that, even though we know that. I'm not talking about planning for uncertainties. That's ridiculous. You can't do that. I'm saying that while we know life has uncertainties... More often than not, we don't live with this attitude that James is talking about here that says we should preface our plans with if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time thing. This is something we should be doing every time we make plans. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And if the Lord doesn't will that we do this or that, our attitude ought to be that's okay. Because my expectations are shaped not by my desires and my will, but first and foremost by virtue of my faith in Jesus. That is, by virtue of my prior commitment to trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding, but in all my ways submit to him. Because if that's my prior commitment, then I will rest knowing that he will direct my paths, no matter how much it deviates from my plans. And in the process of all of that, I will be able to give thanks along with Paul that in all circumstances, come what may, this is God's will for me in Christ Jesus. So, do you have that prior commitment? If you're here today and you have faith in the finished work of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, then let me ask you as a brother... Does your faith impact every area of your life? Does it saturate everything? That's the mission of James. He's just taking this spotlight and he's beaming it on your life. And he's showing and exposing through the mirror of God's word all the hidden dark corners. And if there's something in your life that you're holding on to, maybe it's in business... You're holding on to by yourself, autonomous of God. Maybe it's an area of morality that you've cornered off, that has a little sign that says, God not allowed. Then let me ask you, why are you holding back? Why are you not willing to let go of your independence, your autonomy, and embrace wholly and completely the will of God upon your life? You know what I'm talking about. You're probably thinking about that thing right now. I don't know what you're thinking about. You know what you're thinking about. You know exactly what that area is in your life that you need to get right, that you've cornered off. Let it go. Maybe you feel like it's holding on to you. And you can't control it. God is bigger. God is bigger. He who made the heavens and the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding can help you out. Talk to people by all means, seek help, whatever it is, get counsel, but God is bigger than your problems we know that the problem is the resistance of our heart doesn't just doesn't believe it enough again look at the cross look what Christ has done for us you know you and I we're blind to the next 30 seconds we can't even control the reflex of shutting our eyes and we sneeze God can control and help you out okay you don't need to do this in your own strength Plan, make provisions, produce outcomes, only by the will of God. That's the first reason this morning. James gives us a second one. We're going to move quicker through these. Um, The second reason here is because of the brevity of life. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. It's a little solomonic. It sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes. What is your life? The perennial question that has plagued the hearts and minds of men since Genesis chapter three. Viktor Frankl uh, was a survivor of the Holocaust. You may have read his book *Man's Search for Meaning*. Fantastic. If you haven't, put it on your to-read list. And he wrote these profound words. As the struggle for survival has subsided, the question has emerged. Survival for what? Ever more people have the means to live by but no meaning to live for. In the wake of the horrors of the Holocaust, and he was in Auschwitz, everyone knows that life has meaning. That's not even a question. If you don't think life has meaning, you have no problem with the Holocaust. And I don't think anyone's going to say that. The holocaust was a holocaust because it was senseless killing and senseless eradication of meaningful lives. The question though logically lingers, meaning for what? What is your life? James asks. There are many ways to approach that question but James, good old James, once again takes a very matter of fact approach and he answers the question not with detail but with context. What is your life? Let me put it in context for you, says James. It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. The word here used for vapour is atmos, atmosphere. It refers to breath appearing in cold air and then for a little while and then just disappearing in a split second. You know, probably cold enough to do that outside today. It's an apt description Particularly when you think about somebody on their deathbed. Literally, the moments before death comes, and I'm sure people here have witnessed this, in those final moments you hear breathing. It gets slower and slower, strains more and more, and then that final Exhale, silence. No more chest movement, no more sound, no more air, silence. And they're gone. All their possessions, their house, their money, cars, clothes, smartphone, books, knowledge. That's it, that's life. In the context of eternity, James is saying human life is fragile. But if we're not submitting to the will of God, then we don't think about life like that. We don't think about life in the context of eternity. But that's precisely what the gospel gives us eternal glasses to see the world. That's precisely why we meet here at church on Sundays, to remind and encourage ourselves that there is something beyond this world, to live our lives, our brief lives here with an eternal perspective. If you drowned out all the noise and distraction of routine around you and stopped and really thought about how your life is just Atmos, a vapour, how different would your priorities be? Just. Have a little thought experiment with me for a moment. If you had four days to live from right now, four days, tonight, but tomorrow, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you go to your award. Four days. This would be your last service at Calvary Chapel right now your last time here with these friends, your last time smelling the smells of this building and singing the songs. Who would you talk to after this service? How would you spend your day? Who would you spend your time with? What would you pray about tonight before you go to sleep? What would you pray about tomorrow? Four days to live. Clock is ticking. What would you pray about Tuesday? Wednesday? What would you pray about the morning of Thursday? Who would you want to be with on Thursday? What letters would you write? What passages in the Bible would you read? O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am, said David. I'm trying to be morbid for morbid's sake. This is reality. This is life. It's fleeting. This is biblical truth. And you're not going to hear it outside these walls because people don't talk like this. They hear it from this popwood if nowhere else. Ecclesiastes 7:2 It's better to go to a funeral than to a party for death is the end of all men and the living take it to heart. It's profound. Psalm 144:4 Man is like a breath his days are like a passing shadow. 1 Peter 1:24 1, For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls. 2 Samuel 14:14 14, 14, And this is blunt. We all must die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up. Put that on your uh, mirror. (laughs) I could go on. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. I'm not saying anything other than what James is saying. Anything other than what our Lord is saying to you. We need to live life, we need to make plans, we need to make provisions, of course. We need to do that all in full submission to whatever it is that God wills for our lives because there is this thing called eternity around the corner. We must have an eternal perspective. Our Western world, again, doesn't want to talk about this stuff because, frankly, it doesn't know how to handle death. You know what I'm talking about when you talk to your buddies and your friends about stuff who who aren't believers. You just don't know how to even engage in these kind of conversations. So we just get on with our routine. We're busy with work, shopping, movies, study, Snapchat, My Kitchen Rules. Nothing wrong with those things. I'm just saying we get busy to suppress the reality of mortality. And there's no wonder. Because apart from Jesus and the cross... There is no hope and so we need to put band-aids on our broken bones in order to manage this thing called life. What a tragedy it is or would be to get to the end of your life and look back and reflect as a Christian on how much time you've spent on meaningless stuff and haven't had eternity in mind. Death has no sting for us as believers, it's just a transition. There is no, there's not even a change in your conscious state It's a portal through which we enter into our reward that is good. To die is gain, Paul said. But he also said to live is Christ. And that is sacrifice. That is bloody, callous, cruel, painful, hard. Glorious, but hard. So while we yet have breath in our lungs, let's be on about the Father's business. That's why Jesus said, my time has not yet come. Midnight has not yet struck. The clock is ticking on your life. You've just lost five minutes of your life since I've been talking about your life. Let's be on about our father's business before our midnight strikes. The book of James is all about Christian living. It only makes sense to do this stuff if you have forever in view. If you don't have forever in view, put this book to the side. Okay? That's why we bother with these tests for the Christian faith. That's why we bother not speaking evil because there's this thing called eternity. It's a really good analogy of this. I didn't come up with it. Um, Francis Chan did. Well, I think he did. It's really good if you've seen it. Um, There's this rope, right? Pretend that this rope goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Um, This is a timeline of our existence. This is your life for all of eternity and it just never ends. There's there's no end to the rope behind that table. (laughs) See this little blue part that's called your life let's assume you are fortunate to live to to 85 years old that's 85 years there that's innumerable eternity the, the rest of the way down there so this little blue bit represents our life there's plenty of people who would be listening to what i've been saying maybe you're one of them i don't know and you're thinking my goodness this is crazy This guy is harping on about eternity and all the rest and all about these things we've got to do as Christians and are meant to do and all the rest. But you know what? With respect, I don't think I'm crazy. I think you're crazy. Because you know what? Here's what we know. People who never ponder their mortality, who never think about eternity, their worldview is consumed by this little blue bit. And they're thinking, oh, if I save up money here, then when I get to here I'm going to have more money in my bank and I can go buy that thing if, if I study really hard here then I can get this job here so that I can then retire here and then when I get to that point in life I'll be able to enjoy 10 years before I die what about all of this what about all of this thing called eternity right and you're focusing on that part who's the crazy one Come on, the Bible makes it real clear that the choices we make in that little blue bit count for all of eternity. That's why we bang on about this stuff. That's why James is so good. Not for 10, not for 20, not for 100, not for 1,000, not for a million, not for a billion, but a billion, 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 innumerable infinity. Your brain cannot even comprehend that because it's an abstract idea. Infinity, eternity, that little blue bit is so important because it will affect eternity. That needs to be in view and that is why Christians prioritise Christian living and the imperatives of the Christian faith and all of this stuff in James because it matters beyond however many years God graces us with. You know what, these Jewish businessmen did not have eternity in mind. That's why James is rebuking them. They had no clue that in just a couple of decades from this letter being written, Jerusalem would be pulverized to the dust by Titus and the Romans and no stone would be left unturned on the temple they had no clue in all of their business endeavors in Palestine that their entire economy would collapse that's what James is saying smell the gravy all right have eternity in mind James was calling them and is calling you and I today to set our eyes on things above. one John two, sixteen to seventeen. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We have to deal with eternity. Not to wallow in this kind of depressed, deathly, dark, morbid view of the world and life and all the rest. John 10.10, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. But you cannot have that until you get this. We've got to think about this stuff so that our choices in life will be made with an eternal perspective for Christ's kingdom and for his glory. So where is your stock? Where is your trade? Where is your business this morning? If you only had these four days to live... Why would you speak differently in these four days than any other day? Okay? Have that idea of eternity in mind. And by God's strength, live with a clear conscience ready for death at any moment. Don't have regrets. Do the will of him. Who came? In many ways, this verse is the very stimulus for the entire book of James. Why are we to live faithful Christian lives? Because eternity is around the corner. Man's fallen will is fixed on the here and now. God's sovereign will focuses not only on the here and now, but how the here and now will project into all of eternity. Reason number three, these will speed up. Thirdly, not submitting to the will of God is foolishness because of the evil arrogance that leads to destruction. The evil of arrogance that leads to destruction. Verse 16, But now you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. This carries with it a sense of boasting in one's own accomplishments. This could be translated, you are boasting in your arrogant boasting. There was a famous uh, poem written by a bloke called er- uh, William Ernest Henley. Lived in, he died in 1903. Uh, it's called Invictus. Some of you may have heard it. Let me read out a little bit of it. It captures this idea of um, arrogance so well. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced nor cried aloud under the blungeon of chance my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. That's brazen. That's bold. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments to scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. That's defiance. Defiance, why can I say that? Because he testifies to the knowledge of God in that. Did you catch it? That's what's implied by the straight gate and the punishment of the scroll. And yet he declares with this deluded determination, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. You get a really good picture of that in the end of the latest um, Prince Caspian by Disney where uh, Aslan's standing on the other side of the bridge and all the bad guys are running up and then um, Aslan's there, little Lucy's there, she pulls out a little dagger and there's this whole army ready to just like take him on. And then um, they charge across the, the bridge and Aslan roars and this big, water monster comes up and um in the up on top of this whole water monster thing it's it's getting smashed there's this the leader of the the general of the bad guys just pulls out his sword and he's just looking around like what the and then he just gets angry and he starts to try and swing and then he just gets crushed pulverized that is defiance in the face of um sovereignty and that's what we have here thinking that we can wield our sword despite the reality of god thinking that we're the master of our fate. Uh, When our class went through the book of Daniel at Calvary Chapel earlier this year at the college, uh, one thing that stood out to me more than anything else in that time in the book of Daniel was uh, what's captured in a little proverb, 1618, pride goes before destruction. Nebuchadnezzar rises up in the book of Daniel. His pride makes him overreach and he comes crashing down. And just when you get over Nebuchadnezzar, you're like, whew, happens again with Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes. Write anyone else into history, into the next line, all the way down to today, and we're seeing it at the moment. You probably can testify it in your own life. This little proverb, pride goes before destruction, is the reason for the ebb and flow of history. When you read a history book, you don't read about peace, you read about blood and violence. Dale Ralph Davis wrote a commentary on Daniel and he gives this graphic record that really captures this, well, this kind of fall from glory. He writes this. One can get a microcosmic taste of this in the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials in 1946. After the execution of Nazi celebrities on 16th of October, 14 bodies, including that of Groening, who had cheated by managing suicide, Rithentrop, Katil, Rosenberg, Frank and Stryker... Jodl and Seis-Inquart, sorry, I'm butchering these names, were delivered to the Munich crematorium. That same evening, a container holding the amassed ashes was driven through the rain into the Bavarian countryside. After an hour's drive, the vehicle stopped and the ashes were tipped out and poured into a muddy ditch. Five or six years before, these men could dominate and intimidate. That night a drizzle washed them away. That's a fall. Man proposes, but God disposes, wrote Thomas Akempis. But the purpose of God in disposing the proud, it's not to destroy for destruction's sake. It's to break them for their own sake, so that then God can remake them. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Brokenness, humility, repentance is a necessary prerequisite for a true understanding of the gospel. You can't get Jesus unless you get your need for Jesus. Because it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Christ did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Only when we have a brokenness. I've heard it described like this, if repentance is one of going down a highway, and then turning around and coming back down the other high. It's this changing attitude that leads to a changing behaviour. Brokenness is the off-ramp. And it's not a one-hit wonder either. We're doing this in our, in our walk. We're broken over our sin. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is a great example of that. Read chapter 4 of Daniel. Listen to this insight from uh, one of my heroes, Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> Profound. In order to overcome their pride, God punishes certain men by allowing them to fall into sins of the flesh, which, though they be less grievous, are more evidently shameful. Hence, pride is the worst of all vices, whether because it is appropriate to those who are of highest and foremost rank or because it originates from just and virtuous deeds so that its guilt is less perceptible. On the other hand, carnal lust is apparent to all, because from the outset it is a shameful act of nature, and yet under God's dispensation it is less grievous than pride. For he who is in the clutches of pride and feels it not falls into the lusts of flesh, that being thus humbled he may rise from his abasement. For this, indeed, the gravity of pride is made manifest. For just as a wise physician, in order to cure a worse disease, allows the patient to contract one that is less dangerous, so the sin of pride is shown to be more grievous by the very fact, as a remedy, God allows men to fall into other sins. So thirdly this morning, not submitting to the will of God is foolish because of pride which leads to the arrogance um, which then leads to destruction pride goes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction the sin of willful disobedience our finally, fourthly and finally here this morning not submitting to the will of God is foolishness because of the sin of willful disobedience verse 17 therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it To him, it is sin. This final point is a very real challenge for all of us here today who've sat now under this teaching of James, or maybe who are listening online in the future. Having heard the truth of God's word spoken, what are you going to do about it? To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Having heard James and therefore God's word today, perhaps for the first time, I don't know, perhaps not, you are in the words of Paul without excuse. The issue is not what you thought of today's message. The issue is not how you feel about today's message. That's not James's concern. James's concern is what are you going to do about it? Will you walk out unchanged? Will you walk out with a motivation and an enthusiasm to change but then just forget because life gets busy and routine and, you know, life just, you forget? Or will you walk out here with an urgent recognition of your desperate need to submit to God and his will upon your life and take the action to not lean on your own understanding but in all your ways acknowledge him? You know, walking out of here with a good heart but they're not actually seeking God to implement this stuff into your life. It's like running on batteries. You can do it for a while, but then they'll just die. Plug into the source. Uh, refresh your relationship with, with God through prayer, through understanding his love letter to you, the Bible. If you feel convicted by God's word today, over the next month or over the next decade, if there is no change, then you've got nothing from this. Study on James. Just a bit of emotion, that's all. The evidence of saving faith is that there is a change. If James hasn't taught you that, take something out of your ears because they've been blocked. J.C. Ryle, tell me not of your justification unless you have some mark of sanctification. Boast not of Christ's work for you unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. Bang. But David, oh God, You've been talking all morning about testing my faith by not submitting to the will of God. You haven't even begun to tell me what the will of God is. How the heck am I supposed to leave today and submit to the will of God if I don't know what the will of God is? Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Can you know the will of God? Yes, you can. It's something that you can prove and discern with a transformed life. Saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering. That is the will of God for your life. But I'm not going to presume to tell you exactly how that will work out in your particular circumstances. Because I don't know. But if you have those things in place, then just take a step. Make a decision. Plan and move. If God wants you to move there, you'll move there. God wants you to do that, you'll do that. The stress and strains of life were removed when we resigned and submitted to the will of God upon our lives. David wrote, Lord, teach me to do thy will. He didn't teach he didn't write, Teach me thy will. He said, Teach me to do thy will. And you know, if you're living within the will of God, then Nike kinda had something right. Just do it. Make a decision. Step. Don't be the person who's waiting for God to rip open the skies to tell you what you need to do. Make a decision and believe and trust that God will go with you. And if you're living in his will, he'll shut that door and he'll move you over here. I heard a great story about this guy who went up to Johnny Mac when he graduated from seminary. And he was like, I really don't know what to do. Uh, I want to be a missionary. I don't know where to go. And John MacArthur said, well, um, you know, what are you interested in? And he's like, well, I I love, you know, uh, France. I can speak French and I love the French people. And he's like, well... go to france you know and then they caught up about two years later and and john is like hey man how's it going good 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 yeah i'm in canada that's the point he's now working with french canadians in canada god didn't he had different plans but he made a decision and god will move you we must step out in fact this is like this is the boat analogy um peter not analogy history peter on the boat steps out fixed his eyes on christ and he's walking in faith on top of water. Yeah, believe it. And then he starts to look down, freaks out, sinks. That is a great example of walking within the will of God. Have your, know that your, your destiny is fixed and live by faith and not by your own abilities and you won't sink. Okay. So, take a step. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid that God is going to put a dangerous calling on your life? There is nothing more dangerous than living outside of the will of God. Why? Because of the uncertainty of life, the brevity of life, the evil of arrogance that leads to destruction, and the, the sin of willful disobedience. Let's pray.